seated. And we pray, Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Well, the word of God does sanctify us. Not all words sanctify us. In fact, some words defile us. Raise your hand if you've ever been engaging on social media and found yourself at the end being hurt, burned, or angry. Who here has ever been on social media and at the end of it all has found themselves hurt or angry? Now, some of you might be smart and you just never were on social media. In February, the Senate introduced a bill that would, in fact, restrict or ban anyone under the age of 16 from using social media. Why would such a bill even be considered? Research shows how much social media can impact and influence teenagers in particular so negatively that it leads to increased depression, anxiety, and suicide. Stories of bullying, sexual assault, toxic messages, it's all out there and can find us, hurt us, and defile our conscience. Why? Well, this all happens because words are real. Words are never just virtual. Words are never just fake. Words are never just jokes. Words are real. Words do something. And you can't help and you can't stop words from doing things. They shape us. They manipulate us. They create us. After an argument between a wife and her husband, imagine the wife receiving a text back from her husband, and he says, I would like to talk. Instantly, she could be thinking any number of things. Does he just like to talk? Is he asking to talk? And what is he asking to talk about? And if I would also like to talk, then what are we going to talk about? And what's going to be said? Or is he simply sharing a mundane information in his day, such as I would like to go for a run, I would like a back rub, I would like to talk. Words can do something, and the absence of words can also do something. Words are trying to bridge a gap between what is unseen to what is seen between what a person is thinking to what a person is doing and what it means. Sometimes words are absent and they're taking us from what is seen to imagining what is unseen. What are the unspoken words? What are the unspoken thoughts? What are the unsaid things that are left out of this story? Words shape our vision of reality. And so if I hold up this Bible here and I begin the sermon by saying, what I have here in my hand is garbage. What do you think the sermon is going to be like? 
What do you think I'm going to get out of this? What am I going to use it for? Words matter. And so if I also were to tell you, you're garbage. I'm trying not to look at any particular person. You're all garbage. What are you going to think of yourself? What are you going to think your purpose in life is? To be thrown away. Words matter. The same two people could stand up in front of this church, pick up this same Bible, and say, let me tell you what I think about this book. And they could mean two completely opposite things. It could end in two very different results depending on who that person is holding up that book and telling you what they want to think. For better or for worse, words matter. And that's why I often shy away from using too many words when I'm texting somebody. I purposely do not engage in some kind of complex conversation or some kind of deep or some kind of emotional conversation if it's going to come across as a text message. It doesn't go well. What is the goal of using words? And by using more words, are we really accomplishing what we want to accomplish? Or by using less? Words are meant to reveal what we're thinking, but not all words are bad. In fact, for every bad word that we've experienced in this world, God is wanting to reveal a good word tenfold. God has words that he wants to say, that he wants to deliver to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of the person? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You see, words are spiritual. And if it's God's word, then it's of God's spirit. It means that how are we going to know what God is thinking if he doesn't tell us? Are we just going to imagine it? Are we going to fill in the blank? Are we going to live in the absence of God talking and try to figure out what he's thinking by what we see in the world around us? God does more than just give us words, though. We know that words can be empty. Words can be meaningless if they aren't accompanied with action. So God's word becomes visible. It becomes physical. It becomes action. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. And we read last time, knowing that the Father had given all things into his fleshly hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus is 
both the spoken thoughts of God and the physical actions of God right among us. And in the upper room, he is revealing in the most intimate way what God's thinking. Not just from his opinion or from his perspective, but he says, if you've seen and heard me, then you've seen and heard God. To what end did Jesus need to become human? Why was it so important that God not only speak his words from heaven, not only give you his spirit, but that he become human? In chapter 12, Jesus is troubled. He says, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Jesus is exceedingly troubled. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says he's exceedingly sorrowful. And then in chapter 13, in the upper room, he becomes more troubled. Troubled in his spirit because he knows one of you will betray me. He who has ate bread with me has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this beforehand that when it takes place, you may believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Jesus knows exactly what is coming. He's going to be betrayed by his friend. He's going to suffer. He's going to die and be forsaken on the cross. The word that Jesus uses here is terasso, which means to be stirred up, to be in turmoil, to be upset, like that feeling when you get on Facebook and you read something there that really hurt and you are stirred within yourself. You're troubled exceedingly. Jesus is experiencing all of this, and yet he's experienced it to the the fullest extent of being human and being able to feel these things, and yet where is his focus? Is he feeling sorry for himself? Is he complaining? Is he whining? Is he asking for help? from his disciples or support. Instead, this is what he says in the next paragraph. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. At the moment at which Jesus should be the one to deserve comfort, encouragement, support more than any of us, At a time when he is exceedingly troubled as we could never know, he turns to his disciples and to you, and he's thinking of you. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. These words are meant to reach our deepest parts, to prepare us for what is coming. Because why do our hearts get troubled? Why do we get hurt? Why do we get into turmoil? Why do words disturb us so much? Well, these are the feelings we get when we think God's not dealing with things. 
When we feel frustrated that God's not closer to us, that he's not making us feel better, he's not fixing the problem, he's not seeming to be there when we are in crisis and our hearts get troubled because it seems like he's left us. Or if he hasn't left us, which we won't say he's left us, he certainly doesn't seem to be in total control. Or if he is in total control and he hasn't left us, then really he's not intending the very best for us. In fact, he seems to be about something that's bad for us. Jesus is preparing his disciples for this very experience that he is going to leave them. After being so close to him, after being in the upper room, they're going to watch him die and he's going to be gone, buried. How could they bear this trouble? He's preparing them. And he's teaching them to rely on the same basic truth that he relied on when he was troubled. How did Jesus get through the most troubling of times? In chapter 16, at the very end of his words to the disciples, he says, The hour is coming when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And then he starts praying. The Father is with him. The promises that God has given him are with him. And that's what helps him endure. And so he tells to the disciples, in the same way, Jesus is going to give his word to them, to remain with them. They too are going to go through hard times, a troubled heart. And they're going to feel like they're alone, but Jesus says, you are not alone. He says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. How can Jesus leave and yet come back? Is he talking about judgment day? Is he talking about his final return, his resurrection? Do we have to wait that long to see Jesus again? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The way that Jesus will remain with us is through his spirit. Now that particular topic I'm saving for another time. So in three weeks, we'll come back to the Spirit because it comes up again and again. Or you can come to Bible class Sunday morning and we're talking all about it. But as he goes on and unpacks this, we begin to see that how is God going to give us his Spirit? He says again, because Judas asks him, how will you manifest yourself to us? This is not Judas Iscariot, another Judas in the disciples. How will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How is it that we will see you, but the world won't see you? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus says that they will make their abode, the Father and the Son will make their abode with you. And this word abode comes up numerous times in these couple chapters. Just chapters 13 through 15, you see the word abide or abode come up 18 times. That's a lot for just four chapters. The word means to abide or remain or dwell or have a dwelling or have a home. It's the idea of the father has in his house in heaven there are many dwellings is the first time Jesus says it. When we sing the hymn Abide With Me, it's what we're praying for. We're praying to be at home with Jesus and the Father. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, abide with me. Well, who's the helper? The helper is Jesus, but the helper is the one that Jesus sends to us, the Spirit. The Spirit of truth. He promises to send us the Spirit, and the way that we will know, the way we will be assured, the way we will be comforted by the Spirit is by abiding in His Word. His Word is where the Spirit will be found. His Word is where the Spirit will speak to us. His Word is why we open the Bible every Sunday and every Wednesday night. That is how the Father and the Son are going to make their home with you, is when you are at home in the Word. I included in the service numerous hymn verses from Abide With Me. But I was curious because in the latest edition of the hymnal, there's one verse they didn't include. And I had to go back to the old hymnal, to the common service book. And the old Lutheran hymnal, to find it, is this one we read right before the reading. Not a brief glance I beg, a passing word. But as thou dwellst with thy disciples, Lord, familiar, condescending, patient, free, come not to sojourn, but abide with me. Do you hear what that verse is saying? Don't just give me a brief glance. Don't just give me a passing word. It's praying that like the disciples were in the upper room with Jesus, abiding with him in his home, hearing his word, that we would experience the same thing when we are with him in the word. That we would experience him abiding in the upper room with us, speaking to us, revealing to us what we need to be comforted. And the Spirit is the one that works together with the Word to give us that comfort, to teach you, to bring remembrance to you, to guide you into all truth. He is the Spirit of truth. With so many words out there promoting something fake, something not real, something destructive, the Spirit is promoting truth. And that is the truth of Jesus. 
truth comes up in John's gospel again and again. Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus tells us to worship in spirit and truth. Jesus speaks spirit and life. Jesus says, if you are my disciples, you will abide in my word. Every one of those statements is emphasizing that spirit and the word go together. The word is the way that God will make his home with us, the way that we will know him. But it can't just be the word. It has got to be the word and the spirit. The word and the spirit go together. You can't have one without the other. For instance, if you only have the word, then all you have is an intellectual religion, an ascent, a study, an academic exercise in history, in philosophy, in language. You can hold up this book and say, I would like to tell you more what I think about this. And Bart Ehrman can stand up here and say that, but what he means is that he just wants to tell you what he thinks about it. You can have lots of truth. If all you have is the word, you can have lots of truth, but no love. On the other hand, if all you have is the spirit and no word, you throw this thing out. Why would we even have a church service with the Bible open? We might as well call this garbage if we think we can have the spirit without the word. I could say I'd like to tell you a little bit what God thinks, but I don't need this to tell you. I can tell you right from myself. And if all you have is the spirit but no word, you can have a lot of heart, a lot of love, a lot of conviction about what you think is real and what you believe, but you will not have the truth. So the two go together, the word, which is the truth, and the spirit, which is God in us. Then we will have Jesus dwelling with us, and we will be dwelling with God. Then we will be at home with Jesus, and Jesus will be at home with us. Then we will abide with him this eventide, and he will abide with us when the darkness deepens. And he says, keep it. I know when I prepare a sermon series, I go a lot deeper than anybody is ready for on a Wednesday night. But he says, keep my word. And I think this is very important to take home. He doesn't say, do my word. He doesn't say, perform my commandments. He doesn't say, obey what I'm saying. Although those things are all true and they're all important. He says, keep. The word keep in Greek means to treasure. It's to treasure something, to value something, to hold on to it, to protect it, to guard it, to honor it. Maybe the best word we could use is to cherish. If you cherish something, what do you do with it? Imagine a little child who can't even read yet, and his father gets sick and dies where he's very, very little. And his father, before he passes away, leaves behind a letter. 
Would that child grow up learning to cherish that letter? Would there come a point where the child can't yet read it, but he can understand it if someone else reads it to him? Would there come a point later on where he gets to read it the first time for himself, where he starts to form out the sentences, the words, the paragraph? Would that letter become something that for the rest of his life he would keep, save, and cherish? And even more than a father telling his son what he wants him to know before he dies, Jesus' word is spirit and life, and it keeps on telling us what he's thinking. To treasure it means that we love it more than anything else. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Does it mean you will understand all of this thing? No. Does it mean you will do it all completely perfectly like you're supposed to? No. It means you will treasure it. Does it mean Jesus will tell you exactly what to do in your life every day when you have questions? No. In fact, his commandments are pretty simple. When he says, keep my commandments, he's only given a couple. First one was to serve when he got down on his hands and knees and he says, do what I've done to you. The second one was to love. I give you a new commandment that you love each other. And the third one was to believe. Believe in me. To serve, to love, and to believe. Now the rest is for the Spirit to help you fill in, in your daily life. And we would love to come up to the pastor and say, just tell me what to do, but that's not my job. Maybe somewhere in the world you have people who can tell you what to do. But Jesus simply tells you, love and believe and treasure my word. And by rather than telling you everything with a list of rules, he says, keep my words. If you haven't treasured his word, you won't know what to do. And if you have treasured his word, then no one will need to tell you. Amen. Amen.